I walked into the orderly room and I said, what arm of the service do you want? I said, the infantry. The bloke looked me up and down and he said, bloody fool. Episode 10, Life in the Poor Bloody Infantry. In this special episode, we hear from the veterans of the New Zealand Infantry Battalions who tell just how life was for them and their mates in Egypt and Italy. You know their voices from throughout the previous episodes of this series. We've heard their experiences of training and battle. In this episode, they talk more about life in general, what it was like to be a rifleman, the thin red line, those men who formed the vanguard of the attack. We also hear some great anecdotes that didn't make it into the previous episodes. We open the show with Pat Green talking about how men newly arrived in Egypt got into an infantry battalion from the start. They gave us uh, the option and, and we went to those battalions if we could but uh, uh, sometimes one battalion had taken uh, more casualties than the other and uh, they needed more men and uh, so um, although you were given an option, <laughs> you weren't given it. <laughs> in Māori, we used to get up at half past two in the morning when we are back there. We'd get half past two and they give you a, uh, give you a hot drink they, in King's Regulations, King's Regulations are very fair, you know, yeah, they're good, really. They, the, King's Regulations is good, and they can't, can't get a fight unless they give you a drink, you know, and all this. And uh, then we'd, we'd have platoon parade. Oh, la la, we had one fellow, a little officer called Old Straw. Yeah, right, he, he about half the size of me, and he was oh, oh, just sitting there laughing. We had platoon inspection. We used to have, after that, we have battalion parade and then we'd have platoon protection, you know, and by this time it'd be coming daylight. And of course, we used to have uh, socks like this and then we have what you call uh, hose tops, hose tops on, and then we'd have our putties, you see. And uh, laugh, here we are, comes daylight and the old colonel's going to inspect this and we'd put it, we'd put some effort into this, you know, and uh, I'll, I'll old uh, straw, he'd already done everything and here he is standing there and he only had one hose top on. Yeah, he, he forgot to put, he forgot to, he's done to study daylight and old straw, we laughed like hell, eh? Yeah, 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 I'll never forget that, eh? Poor little bugger. <laughs> yeah. So then we used to, then we'd march out and we called the Devil's Parade Ground and uh, it'd be about 10 miles, you know. We'd march, and then uh, we'd we'd form up and have a bloody sort of a charge across the bloody desert, and then by that time when we stopped there, they we'd have our breakfast. By this time it's about eight o'clock or a bit after, and then we'd do something else, 
but this time we're up nearly to hell one, you know. So then from hell one right back down to, there's about 12, 13 miles. So way we bloody go down down the Nile again, getting back down to Marty, and we'd get there about, oh, about two o'clock in the afternoon, I suppose. And uh, But this time when we're coming up through Marty, is all the bloody artillery all, all gone out and leave. They'd give us hell, eh? And we still got about five months, so then we'd get up there and we're bloody sweating that, and we'd have a shower and we'd have a dinner then. And then uh, we're allowed to have off till about four o'clock or five. And then we'd have an hour's PT. But that time it'd be six o'clock. Yeah, yeah, we just keep bloody going. And, and then we'd be ready for bloody bed at eight o'clock, you know. Yeah, because we had to get up in the morning. Oh, we're bloody fit, there's no doubt about that. There's no beef on you. No. Oh, well, when we were in, in Marty camp, we used to go route marches through the day. We'd go for a whole day marching out to nowhere in the desert, turned around and come back again, just to keep you fit. You come back in a ball of sweat. Used to take, well, in my case, I used to come back Take my steel helmet off and run your hands through your hair and your head come out in your hands. <laughs> but they, we got the chance, uh, the engineers there again, they uh, rigged up um, showers for us. And it was wonderful to get under a shower. Yeah. Big, great big tents with the power and they'd have a big water heating container on the back of a truck. Very nice. <laughs> we used to have leave, leave into Cairo. And that itself was an education. The way they people live. They live on the river. Everything goes down the river. You name it, you name it it'll be there in the river. <laughs> yeah, filthy place. <laughs> Yet I liked it, you know. Well, you know, really, I really got educated in the Army. I really got educated in the Army. You know, when you, when you look at it, I suppose I got a lot the Army thank the Army for. I learned, learned bloody self-respect and, well, I'm as good as the next bugger and better, you know. When I look back at all the people that went from Drury and everything, I think I was the only bugger that got a commission out of the whole bloody district. You know, if you want to look at it like that. Yeah. You know, the division was quite amazing because it was totally self-controlled, self-sustaining and everything. All our own trucks, all our own artillery, all our own armour, all our own hospitals, everything. And, and really... It was unique. There wasn't another unit in the world quite like the second New Zealand Expeditionary Force. Not another one anywhere. And that was through Freiburg, because in the desert, quite often, they infantry would cap capture a, uh, a position and depend on the British tank regiment to come up and support them, and they'd arrive too late, uh, and the Germans would come in and push them off. So he converted one of the infantry brigades into an armoured brigade and they were equipped with the American Sherman tanks. And so, yeah, it was a wonderful 
fighting in at the New Zealand Division? Uh, it was cook truck to every company. Uh, and uh, they set themselves up as soon as we stopped. And uh, uh, we were independently catered for. Of course, our food was always a stew of some sort, bully beef or M&V, which was meat and vegetables, all out of a tin. We never carried anything bar a spoon to eat with. We didn't see bread. Occasionally, if we're out on, on leave, uh, out for a rest, rather, we might get a bit of bread. But we never had need of a, a knife and fork. It was a spoon, was all you needed. But over there, like, you're not allowed to eat human food on the isn't it? Because they grind up glass and put it in your food and cut yourself. So you're not allowed to touch them. And that's a Turelli. We left two old people in that town and we gave them our food. Yeah, don't touch theirs. The Mortar when we moved forward, we were issued uh, rations and we had primuses. <clears throat> and, and little staves some of the time that were portable bloody things that were useless in the wind and, and of course you could, in Italy it was better than the desert because you could you get into a building it might, mightn't have any windows or a roof on it but uh, you'd get out of the wind and uh, they would issue us with, with bully beef and hard biscuits and yeah, that was the, you could make a stew out of that and if you could uh, steal or acquire any anything like uh, onions to go with it, well, uh, it was good. Uh, I was caught uh, bandicooting bloody spuds somewhere <laughs> one dark night, and and the owner was very very upset, <laughs> and we didn't stop to hear the finish of his <laughs> carry on, <laughs> and uh, at. Um, <clears throat> Uh, but uh, the rifle company blokes, they were had food brought up uh, after dark each night. The quartermaster uh, arranged that, the company quartermaster arranged that, and a lot of them were duty struck enough to go up and look after my boys, see they got it. <coughs> and they would, they had uh, cylinders, about that big, about that round, and they were hot hot. Well, thermos is really in a way, and you got the tea. It was still, it wasn't piping hot, but it had probably been two hours in the way. But it was hot, and stews were brought up and things like that too. It was always stews of some kind, and not much variation, but. Uh, there was wonderful things you could do with bloody... Some of the c cooks were bloody good, and we had a battalion cook, uh, Sergeant Cook, and he, he, he was very good and very uh, dedicated to getting the best for his boys. And, uh, but in our platoon, I, I wasn't very in it very long, and we were in a forward area waiting to move into... Uh, uh, closer to casino, we, we were there when we watched the first bombing, we were back uh, at three or four miles and uh, they told me, right, you've got to cook the tea tonight for our six, six, uh, ten men. 
And I said, uh, I've never cooked in my life. This will be rather interesting. And he said, it don't matter about it being bloody interesting. You've got to get off your bloody ass and do it. So I started chopping down a bloody tree, which was highly illegal in Italy. They valued their trees, and, and there was big fines. <coughs> When the cooks went into an area and they set up a cookhouse in a bloody olive grove, you know, they drove nails into trees to hang utensils on. And the sergeant cook would be wetting himself that these bastards would be bloody well killing trees or something. And, and I never heard of anyone being fined or penalised for killing trees, but uh, it was a fear. Anyway, uh, uh, well, they had their stuff, and we. But so I'm chopping down a bloody tree, and this mouth almighty bastard came along, and he said, "What are you doing, carving your bloody name on the bastard, on the trunk?" As <laughs> a piss poor axe. And he, he goes, oh, I said, "Well, show me. You're all bloody mouth. Now show me what you can do with the bloody axe." And he. He had about four or five swipes and the bloody thing was down. And, <coughs> and uh, uh, anyway, it was green wood and I thought, that's not too good. So I chopped up a bloody railway sleeper. The, uh, there were a lot of sleepers that had been, a uh, railway had been disrupted and we, someone had had a train that had a big hook on the back of it and it went down with the lines with the, it dragged this hook and it just, hooked the bloody uh, um, sleepers and broke them in half. It was quite an effective way of putting a line out of action. And uh, <coughs> so I got one of these bloody sleepers and was chopping up wood and, uh, and I cooked this bloody uh, bully beef stew on it. What I didn't know was that the uh, sleepers had been uh, treated with uh, creosote. And uh, you know the smell of the stuff? Well, the stew tasted like that. And, uh, of course, uh, this mouth almighty bloke, he went on and he did it. He raved and went from that. And uh, he had a couple of stripes, I think, at the time. And uh, he, <coughs> he was very rude. And uh, he said, you're not bloody well cooking any more bloody taco for me. And I said, well, uh, that's the first bloody decent thing you've said all day. And I don't really think I did much cooking after that. Uh, there was odd blokes that had a bit of a talent for it and would volunteer for it. And uh, One of them was an embarrassment to us because he was such a dirty bastard. I saw him squatting down there over a bloody primus, stirring this bloody stuff. A bloody cigarette hanging down here and ash dropping into the... Uh, and of course he hadn't washed it. Uh, water wasn't always available, and and he was he was keen for it. Anyway, he uh, had a brother that was um, a cook in a, a tank battalion <coughs> who claimed him, and so uh, Harold left us, and uh, oh, we, we were a bit relieved to see him go. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes. Uh the jeeps that bring our tucker can't reach us. Well, we had to cook our own, you know, 
look around for Tarah, cook it, you know, and we share it with our park our friends, soldiers, yeah, and plenty of chicken, pigs, and they're just running around. No, no Italians there, you know, they got to, they've moved out, you see. Yeah. And there's chickens everywhere, and just help yourself. <laughs> you know, every home that was there, all the Italians all had um, a cellar with the wine, you know, making wine, eh? and there's some there stored. We weren't allowed to touch, not when the fighting go on, going on. Yeah. Another thing is, we all had the old fashioned, close. We, we still in North Africa, we had all the bloody 1480 war, all the old bloody gear. You know, bloody old web gears, bloody terrible stuff, it gets wet and, oh, you know. Yeah, if only Yanks have got all the nice gear, you know. And it's only about that stage that we start to get Tommy guns and that, uh, for our section leaders and that. Yeah. No, we had, you know. And of course, our tanks were bloody useless. Those Churchill tanks, when we went through San Fortunata up there, we relieved the Greeks. Because they had a Greek battalion fighting there. They were going back to Greece when old Jerry was withdrawn from the, 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 uh, the Balkans. We, uh, actually, they, they reckoned the New Zealanders were going to go there. Because we'd been there before and they reckoned we'd, the Greek people would like us to go. But anyway, uh, we went through them and relieved them. And as one of those South seventy-five, it's written into the history. One of them knocked out uh, fifty-six tanks at the range of three miles. At the range of three miles. And now, when we went through this San Fortunata and these planes, there was four four tanks in, in one behind each other, in one side and out the other. And they had these new Churchills there. They said, "Oh, there they're going to be the answer." And here's these bloody Churchills, they're 56 ton. And they've got little pop guns on like this. Actually, some of the crews were still living there with them when we went through. Yeah. And, and there was one gun up on the side of the hill got them. Just popped them off like that. You know, our, our, our armour is terrible, eh? Because uh, the first time we ever went into action, we lost those 52 at Casamantana. Uh, 52, and our, our, our boys are never the same again. They got the end knocked in, yeah. And of course, all up North Africa, they, after Alamein, they never went up to Tunisia. They went back to Mardi to train on tanks, yeah, and the 22nd Battalion, yeah, because they were the Div Cab, and they all went went to train as armour. We are going to have our own armour. The first day we went in, we got really no, no, nose knocked in, yeah. So we, we were doing what they call a, a road job, you know, and, and to take up the slack and see where old Jerry is and all that. We'd have three tanks behind each, each lot. And uh, uh, funny thing, we're going ahead. That bloody tanks are back because if they stuck their nose out, old Jerry would knock them off. Yeah. And then 
we'd, we'd, we'd go all bloody day, you know. We'd go bloody miles. And of course, yes, and down up, no bloody knocking off the smokehouse. Uh, yeah, we, we did travel in trucks uh, to reasonably close to the front line. And then they put us on the ground. I think they valued the trucks higher than the men. I, I had some uh, good blokes. I mean, I enjoyed my period there as an officer. I mean, and, uh, I had one bloke only let me down. The, uh, and I won't mention his name. But, uh, of course, I hope it wasn't me. It wasn't you, no, no, no. But I went looking for him to find out when something had happened and he disappeared. He, he'd gone back to camp. But I made his life a little bit... I never I never reported him. I, sh I should have really put him on charge for it, but I, I never did. I said, it's just something between you and me. And that, that, that was... Well, like it didn't do any, it didn't do him any harm. If I I'd put him on charge, he would have had that stigma against him for the rest of his life, which which it's he in his table, right? which he hasn't got. Bob was saying that uh, he was let down only by ever by one man, and the same thing happened to me. I had uh, amongst some of the reinforcements, as we lost casualties and chaps went out and so on. Uh, we'd get some replacements, and uh, this big powerful fellow was one of them. And we were out for a rest when they joined us. And uh, when it came time to go to the line, his section leader came and said to me, he says he's not going in, you see? So this really bugged me. I went and had a word with uh, the company commander. And he said, look, I'll give you permission to get him into the line any way you like. <coughs> so I gave one of the boys my Tommy gun. And uh, I said, right, he's going into the line with us. Uh, if he tries to duck away, shoot the bugger. So we got him into the line. The very first night he disappeared. Uh, and we never saw him again. Uh, he was captured months and months later, uh, way down in southern Italy, uh, wearing a major's uniform um, and driving a jeep. <laughs> and he pinched this uniform somewhere. Um, he found out he had a long history of offending here uh, in this country. He had done a bit of time in Mount Eden and so on. So, yeah, he was the guy who let me down. And it just shows you that the Kiwis have got initiative. <laughs> yeah, it's not always the little guys that uh, might let you think, you know, they might be small and they're going to uh, crack up first, but it's not so. Uh, it's the big buggers that <laughs> seem to toss it in. Oh, no, I'm not all that big, and I, I lack intestinal fortitude. <laughs> <coughs> Shorty, he was the frightenest man I ever saw, and he was the bravest man. Oh, and he, he never came back to us. He had the 21st Battalion got him, and uh, <coughs> he was in a show, 
and he he was a stretcher bearer from that time onwards, and uh, they got into a, a show, uh, and they came under heavy fire, and so they their advance was stopped, and they were all waiting around, and the boss said, "Right, get 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 down and and don't move around. You're attracting enemy fire." And, and, and no account go forward from here. And of course, the bloody boss, he went forward to do a bit of a reconnoitre and find out what it was all about, what was holding them up, and he got hit. Uh, he was hit in the ankle or somewhere, and uh, he had a little batman. And the batman went out to get this bloke, who was, you know, he would have been pretty close to a six foot of the officer. The Batman was, wasn't, he had his arm, <laughs> <laughs> obviously had his arm around the short bloke, and he, he, the Batman wasn't making a very good job of it, so Shorty goes out, out of it you bloody weed, Shorty was very short, piss off you useless bastard, I look after this stupid prick, about this this bloody ape, the bloody Tyler stuff to death, come out here, and what's he do, come out here, and, uh, and put him, Two me, two other men, and a bloody risk of life and limb because he's such a stupid bastard, a bloody useless prick. <laughs> he should have been decorated, but instead of that, he was abusing. He was a very abusive bloke. Uh, the first time we came under fire, <coughs> as soon as we were out of it, I went over to, and I went to Shorty's bloody uh, uh, slit trench. And I said, are you all right, Shorty? Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. I said, oh, it's all right now. Look, it's, it's, it's as good as gold. And I, I said, but there's worse things than getting hit with shrapnel. I said, I had a dose of shits. And I said, I was crouched down having it when a shell came over. And in my hurry to throw myself face downwards in the ground from a crouch position, I fell backwards and what I bloody passed. And Shorty started to laugh. Pooh, green, you're, you're a dirty, shitty old bastard. And he started to laugh. Pooh, he said, you stink your ass. And he started to laugh. And I, I saw it then. It's, I'd learnt that the slit trench was a marvellous thing. You had a wonderful show of surviving severe bloody shelling. But to break the tension, there was nothing like a wisecrack. And if you were lucky enough to be able to think of one, or to be with a bloke that could think of one, it broke the tension. And uh, we broke it for shorty. And instead of that bloke going out with anxiety and neurosis, he... he he stayed with the 21st blokes until it was time for him to come home uh, when, we, when the war was over, or almost over in his case. He was a 6th reinforcement, so they left us somewhere in the Lombardy Plains, I suppose. Well, everyone was scared. Uh, bravery is a, a strange thing. Um, yeah, you can be scared, uh, but still keep going. You know, very often we we advance behind a, a, a barrage. So you'd move up to the start line 
and your platoon commander would have been given a, an objective to attack, to take or occupy, and hopefully, if possible, he would have done his best to sight it, perhaps with the platoon sergeant as well. So there's always a start time. Um, and most of our, a big lot of our attacks were done in the dark. Um, and believe me, they are by far the best attacks. Um, and we'd move up to, quite often, the artillery would be firing uh, for quite some time on, on the objective. objective. And we'd move up to a start line and just stay there, lie down, and the shells are screaming over your head and pounding up the country in front of you. You've uh, done your homework, hopefully, and tried to visualise what's in front of you there. Um, and then all of a sudden it's quiet. The shelling stops. And you know way back there behind you, the gunners are lifting their sights 50 yards. So the next thing, it starts again. And so you, then it's your turn. You move forward and occupy uh, where they've first been shelling. And you hope that if there's any Germans left there, they put their hands up. If they don't, you do what you've been trained to do. One hope in that is that each bloke has lifted his sights up just in case, because if one's dropping short, it's very demoralising. There's always a, the odd uh, artillery piece that'll fire short. Um, in our platoon, 18 platoon, we actually had one man uh, shot by one of our own. Um, people, you. Occasionally you get the odd guy that's pretty nervous and he was on sentry and one of the boys had, had got up to uh, empty his bladder um, and came back in and just made a, a, a bit of a noise coming back to his sanger and this chap swung around and shot him. Um, you can't avoid that sort of thing. And of course we lost two men because that was a finish for him too, the chap who did it, once he realised what he'd done. Um, it's done and there it is, and it's a, just another casualty, weren't it? And uh, oh, a good a friend of, uh, of Norm's, uh, in fact, uh, connected by marriage to Norm's family after the war, um, had his leg taken off with a, one of our 25-pounders, came through the back window of a, of a house and took one of his legs off. So, you know, it bound to happen. We're all this live ammo everywhere. And you've all got the... Your, your weapon is loaded. It, it only means it touches the trigger and... Yeah. And uh, things can happen all right. And, you know, not intentionally. Oh, you hear these odd guys, you read books about chaps shooting their officers and so on. Oh, I doubt that ever happened. I think it would be a lot of bullshit in that. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it may have in those days when they flogged them and that sort of thing, but not in our day. Now, we had a great respect for 
for, for all of our officers. I never struck a dud. Um, and as I say, that man cleared out on us at night. Uh, everyone's different, and, and uh, when you get a bit of rank, you learn to handle each person in a different way. But all those ones that we did in casino, they were all daylight attacks, weren't they? Yeah, day, it's casino ones. Yeah. All daylight. Went, and, went, uh, went into position at night time and then waited until <coughs> morning, morning came and... Yeah, oh, pure daylight. And then mm. that's when your blood started to boil and the old sergeant say, fix maynots. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Well, as a range taker, you didn't take ranges all day, every day. So they used me as a wireless operator on a, on a smaller set and uh, running messages. It was a bloody uh, runner and it was a dangerous bloody job that bastard. Everyone else was in, in, in undercover when you were being shelled, but you had to get from point A to point B with your bloody message. And, and I got chased one day right across a bloody big field. I, uh, I had to go from here to there. And instead of going around the side of the paddock where there was gorse and a bit of a drain, I went straight across. This was in Italy. And I got chased by a bloody mortar. And they were loving these bloody mortars down. And they were landing behind me and I was... I was on my way in a bloody big hurry, and, uh, <clears throat> and it didn't frighten me, it made me wild, and when I got there, I was ropeable that these bastards weren't playing with <laughs> the rules of war that I thought they should be playing. One man with a bloody rifle, and he was being cheered. They were using a bloody big mortar on him and fired a lot of bombs at him. And I didn't think that was quite fair. I was very annoyed about it. What they call the Feinzer attack. It really was our first big attack, the, uh, the 12th reinforcement. They joined up in force then. They were the main force in the, uh, in the battalion. Because that was the biggest reinforcement that went over for the Maori battalion. It was our one. The others were, you know, 100 and something, 200 and, you know, we had 400 and went over, 400 odd, to uh, help fill up the gaps in the battalion. And, uh, yeah, to, out of that 400, well, a good half of them didn't come back with us after the war, you know, some were wounded, some were still in hospital, and some, of course, they're still there now which was sad, you know, then totally different from what they were telling us on the boat. Yeah. Uh, so part of the day's work, uh, I think we managed that reasonably well. Uh, the only blokes that got rocked were, uh, and rocked more than the others, were fellas who had brothers there, and a brother was killed. That was a fairly severe jar, um, but uh, I never had to contend with that uh, because I was the only boy in the family anyway. Uh, so I didn't have that to worry about. The trouble with Italy was that you had a main um, 
um, mountain ridge right down the, the, the centre and from that you had all these streams running down right across the plains and of course you had dirt. The Germans fortified every one of these rivers all the way back and as he withdrew he blew the, bay, the, the uh, bridges and of course we had to uh, get the engineers to put Bailey bridges across. But meanwhile, of course, uh, the poor old infantry had to wade across. Uh, they were bitterly cold, it straight off the snows from the mountain. And um, this particular night, um, we were going to do, do an attack, and fortunately, we wandered down and we found an Italian punt. So we looked around and we found some rope. So the first bloke across paddled across using the butt of his rifle as a, as a paddle and uh, dragging the rope over as, at the same time. Tied the rope on the other side and then came back and then we pulled ourselves one after the other, you know, boat load at a time. And we got across the other side of the, the river uh, bone dry and we were really celebrating this. Meanwhile, A Company were on our right, uh, right alongside where, they, where the bridge had been blown and they were getting held there. The Germans shelling them and, um, very heavily and they were having heavy casualties. So instead of starting in the advance, they said, look, A Company are totally disorganised. You can't go on your own because you'd have open flanks both sides. So um, get your men under cover if you can and uh, wait for further orders. We were fortunate about oh, 100 yards from the uh, river, there was a, um, a drain. It was about probably three foot deep. And we got all the men in there and um, my brother was a platoon commander, I was a platoon sergeant, and uh, we had uh, two other sergeants, and uh, the four of us were just standing there talking, and um, we, ne uh, we never heard, uh, the 88 is a uh, supersonic gun, you, you never hear it coming, and um, the first thing I knew was that uh, I came to and um, I was being kicked by somebody, and uh, it was one of the sergeants, um, had to, uh, got a bit of shrapnel through the throat and uh, he was in his death throes. Um, I'd had a ruptured eardrum, blood nose and uh, I'd bitten my tongue and uh, it took me a while to realise that of course that we'd been blown up and uh, I suddenly thought of Clarence, uh, my brother, and because um, this was, it was in dark, I mean, and there was quite a bit of smoke in that around. So I staggered around uh, looking for him and I tripped over a body and it was uh, one of the other sergeant and he'd got a bit of shrapnel through the, um, the head and he was dead. And I found my brother and he was um, or barely conscious and his leg was shattered from just below the hip and sticking out at right angles this direction here and he had a hole in his um, shoulder blade. And um, so um, straightened his leg, put a tourniquet on and uh, used a rifle as a splint. And um, we had five walking wounded, slightly wounded, they were capable of walking in that. And um, the stretcher bearer, <coughs> we got him to um, um, put bandages on brother and things like that. And uh, he was to take the punt across the other side of the river and um, take the walking wounded to the RAP, uh, Regiment laid post and um, bring back a carrying party from my brother. So off he went and I dragged the two sergeants um, into the um, 
the um, ditch that we were, uh, the men had uh, back, uh, actually they'd gone ahead. The company commander told me to, to stay where I was to make sure the brother got uh, attended to all right, which turned out to fortunately end because I waited and waited and waited and um, no sign of uh, carrying party. So I had to strip off, <laughs> the pump was on the wrong side of the river. And uh, I swam across and went down to the RAP and um, asked where the um, uh, the carrying party was. And they said, what carrying party? I said, well, where are my uh, walking wounded? They said, you haven't had any wounded, only A Company. And I said, but I've sent five men back. And the the thing that worried me, of course, is that they'd uh, stopped a shell or something like that and wiped the whole lot out. So when I got a carrying party and got a brother back, then I went looking uh, and I thought, well, I'll go back to the platoon headquarters, there was a house on the edge of the um, river. And here the five blokes were sitting there and I said, what the hell are you doing here? And they said, oh, uh, the, uh, this RAP bloke um, said, wait here and they'd go and get a jeep. I said, but you're capable of flame and walking, it's only a couple hundred yards. So I took them back and I started to make inquiries and um, they said, oh yeah, he was here. Um, we called him Snowball actually, <laughs> and uh, he was here and had a cup of coffee and um, he disappeared. Um, I, I, I'll be quite honest, I, I always carried Thompson's submachine gun and I went looking for this bloke and um, I'd, I'd have shot him. I was absolutely furious because at least he could have um, attended the, the wounded and um, actually what had happened, he deserted, he'd gone up into the mountains with the, uh, lived with the Italians. <laughs> uh, in an indirect way, he, say, say, he actually saved my life <laughs> because um, we're doing an advance in Florence and um, we'd done an attack the night before and uh, we were to line up on the road, uh, ready to advance uh, up a hill and uh, we were waiting, uh, the start time was eight o'clock, so we were standing on the road there just waiting for, for the um, signal to go ahead. And uh, a runner came down and said, well, you want it back in company headquarters? So I wandered back up to, on a bit of an embankment there, a house, and I said, what's the problem? They said, oh, you're not going into action this morning. Um, brigade is sending up a jeep. They'd arrested this bloke, he'd been living with the um, Italians. The Red Caps heard, Caps heard about it, that's the military police. They arrested him and I was to go back to Capua, a place right back near Naples for a court-martial as um, chief witness. So I went back and um, my uh, sergeant was a Pakeha, uh, my name was McCallman, Mac, I always called him. And uh, I said to Mac, well, uh, you know, you're uh, commander, I said, I've got to go back to a court-martial. And I said, now you look after my blokes. So I said, I don't want to see any heads missing. She'll be right, Chiefy, she'll be right, Chiefy. And uh, I went back to company headquarters and there was an explosion. I looked around and a shell had landed and uh, killed Mac outright and um, um, quite quite a few casualties in the platoon. So uh, indirectly, I, could, I should have been uh, in Mac's situation. Um, Mac, uh, McCallman, I go back to um, the Sangro, or, or um, uh, the, the battle at the Sangro here. Mac was a, uh, in 2 battalion, which is a machine gun uh, battalion, 
and uh, they were generally a little bit further behind the lines and they'd fire indirectly over and put a cone of, uh, of fire um, along the front uh, to, you know, in the event of an attack or anything or reach further than we could do with a, with a Bren or anything else. And that was too far back behind the lines for Mac, so uh, Mac decided he was going to desert Ford and join the Maori Battalion. So Mac was there with, with the Maori Battalion for um, all the time we were in Orsonia. And uh, then when we got word that we were to transfer to um, Casino, Mac came up to me and he said, Hell, mate, what am I going to do? He said, If I go back now, I'll be court martialed. And I said, um, yeah, we'll go and see the company commander. And our company commander was Monty, uh, Monty Wycliffe, who later um, earned himself a um, military cross at Casino. And um, I said to um, uh, Monty, I said, uh, Mac doesn't want to go back. Um, he'll, he'll be court martial. What did he do? And he said, oh, we'll get him transferred to Maori Battalion, which is exactly what he did. Now, Mac was built like a, uh, quite, quite a, a stocky bloke with gingery hair, always had a smile on his face, good-natured, um, and uh, every time he went to action he had a, a sugar bag on his back, he had um, tucker ammunition, you name it, he had it in there, he had a Bunsen burner for boiling up, uh, making tea, he had a billy, every time we stopped in action, the first thing Mac would do would be looking out for a fowl, plucking a fowl, putting it on to boil, and uh, if there's any cabbages or, or puha, actually we were surprised that puha grew in Italy, which is a favourite Maori dish, of course. And uh, many a time, of course, we'd just uh, Mac would just start to get the, the billy boiled, and we'd get word, pack up, we're going to advance again, because two, two, three battalions, somebody got ahead of us. So Mac would uh, just pour the juice off and still have the salt one in the back. And his favourite thing would stop for uh, 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 finish an action or something like that. The first thing he'd do is put on his um, uh, buns and burner for a, um, a cup of tea, pull out the fry pan, and Mac always had um, plenty of tin butter from New Zealand. We had flour, uh, egg powder, he had a bit of seasoning of some, some description. He generally had something that he bought from the canteen. And um, he, he'd be mixing up uh, and making um, little pancakes and things like that. Well, you can imagine how long pancakes would last with 30 hungry Maoris around Mac. <laughs> Mac generally finished up getting nothing himself. And uh, we'd go into action, and of course, he'd have these things hanging on the back, and we'd be going into the line to take over from uh, one of the other battalions. We're supposed to be very, very quiet, and you hear this clank, 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 Mac. I'd say, for goodness sake, shut up, Mac. Don't worry, don't worry, you'll, you'll be pleased. I've got these when we get here. And he, he was a marvellous character. The only time I ever saw Mary and Mac uh, really um, lose his cool, um, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure where it was, but the Gurkha, the Gurkha Battalion took over from us and uh, they came, came into company headquarters and we did up a brew and um, the Gurkhas, you could stand a spoon up, the, the tea was that strong. And Mac came in, and Mac uh, had a very, very short hair, haircut and things like that. And the Gurkha looked, and of course he obviously wasn't a Maori, and um, they asked who he was, and I said, oh, he's a German prisoner of war. And uh, I said, oh, we're just about to dispense with him, but, but we don't know what to do with him. Take him out and shoot him. Would you deal with him? And Mac, Mac really lost his, you know, he got quite abusive, lost his sense of humour. <laughs> 
I said, oh, well, I can prove nearly anything. <laughs> but he did look like a German, too. We had a lot of firepower. Each, each platoon, about 28 men in an infantry platoon then. Um, the platoon commander had a Tommy gun. That's a Thompson machine gun, 0.45 calibre, the same exactly as Al Capone and the American gangsters used. Um, they had the drum magazines which held 50 rounds. We had the box magazine that only held 20. Um, and so you could squirt off 20, very high firing, very inaccurate. Uh, but at 30, 20 or 30 yards, if you hit someone, you hit him, you know, he was done. So the platoon commander, the platoon sergeant, the three section leaders all had Tommy guns. Uh, each section had a brain gun. Uh, you had a two-inch mortar. You had a Piat anti-tank gun. And all the rest of the guys carried rifles, 303 rifles. So there was a lot of firepower there in an infantry platoon. But, you, you know, you see these films and they're squirting ammo, ammo away, left, right and centre, like the Ander Brothers and so on. And that's not the way war is. You soon run out of ammo uh, if you start firing. And very often it gives away your position. Uh, the, there were three, pl three platoons in each company, and there were three companies, so there was nine platoons. There, there, there was a mortar platoon of 40-odd men to, to a battalion, and in that, in that platoon there were six guns, uh, and they were in three sections, two, two guns to a section, and there was a, a sergeant uh, as the senior sergeant in, in uh, leading that section, and he had something that was rather rare in their bloody outfit. He had a, a lance sergeant looking after the second gun. So in our platoon, it was quite unique. It was larger than the infantry platoons, the rifle company platoons, they had about 33 men and we had about 42 and they had one sergeant we didn't have one we had seven platoon sergeant and six sergeants for the guns uh, they wanted uh, a man of experience and responsibility to be firing uh, uh, just above our own troops to be fired just in front of them it was they considered it was a responsible job <coughs> and um, of course in practice we were never had the full complement at all uh, at any stage. You always had blokes that were going out with malaria fever or sandfly fever, a bit, a bit like the same ailment, and uh, um, diarrhea or, or in the desert you had these um, desert sores. You'd knock a bit of skin off and you'd go, you'd go, become infected immediately and they'd get bigger and bigger and they were just, you'd put up with them and you had bandages, had khaki bandages so they wouldn't show up and make you conspicuous and uh, oh, horrible bloody things. I wore longs uh, all the time in the desert in case it protected my knees when you dived when when enemy fire came over, 
And when you hit the deck, well, you didn't skin your knees, and I didn't want to. And you said there was three three companies in a in a, a three a three platoons in a company, and uh, the platoon was split up into three sections. Uh, uh, Eighteen platoon had. Uh, Seven, eight, nine. I, I, I think we were. Might have been, I think we were seven platoon, a seven section, and, uh, and uh, we we worked together as best we could. <laughs> that, uh, that, that, that each section was led by a corporal. Like the mortar platoon, there was only one signal platoon, and. Two men would probably be uh, posted to uh, A Company, two to B, and two to C Company, D Company. Oh, that's four four rifle companies, uh, four, four four rifle platoons to a company, yeah. And uh, yeah, on top of the, the signals and the mortars, we had an anti-tank um, platoon. It was about as big as the mortar one, I would imagine. I don't know how many guns they had, but they were useless bloody two-pounders. And uh, they they had them mounted on portes, and they even fired them from those, which was the most dangerous bloody thing they could ever do. They're <laughs> up in the air instead of being <laughs> dug, dug in. And... Uh, uh, well, there was a platoon, a uh, company headquarters of uh, the officer in charge. He had a 2IC uh, who did clerical work or took over when one of the platoon commanders, the lieutenants, uh, very often second lieutenants, uh, they did their job. Most blokes, there were seven of us, and we all did things together. Like in the infantry, you support one another. And there were seven of us, we did the patrols. At night time, we did a listening patrol where you had to get away up the front and listen. You did a fighting patrol where you had to go out and catch a German. And now the time, you had to go on a fighting patrol. Yeah, you know, you had to fight your way around a machine gun. Yeah. So, we'd, so I did those. Yeah patrols on the rivers and things like that. We did those. And, and, and you never had to uh, tell a bloke, you're coming, you're coming. All volunteers. Yeah, whether they want to go or not, all volunteers. Yeah. Yeah. So, we, you know, we did those. Just for something to do. No bit of action, eh? Keep going. Yeah. Oh, old Charlie. Oh, that's when we went back. Uh, uh, to Fabriana, that was a place called Fabriana. We were both sergeants then, and it's a village in, in the in this valley, you know. And we were in the little village, and uh, we we got into a big sort of a house. We always get in sort of that sort of places. And guys, we go in this this bloody big bed, eh? Oh, it's a bloody terrific bloody bed. And of course, all the fellas were they were sleeping on the floor and all this, and they all had things. And that's bloody big bed. And there's enough room for bloody six of us in there. And old Charlie, you know, him and I used to sleep, eat in this bloody big bed, you know, and uh, laugh. 
Yeah, they used to call us mum and dad, eh? They always give us hell, eh? Yeah. Oh, we had bloody good sleep in the big bed, eh? Most of the time we didn't get enough sleep because we have to mount pickets night and day. Uh, and if just once you, you get a few casualties, you've got at least two, two stints to do in a night. Uh, because you usually put two on, uh, not one. Uh, one is used on times, but uh, not so, not frequently. In that, uh, if he gets wiped out, there might be no one to give the alarm, you see. They leave a tenth of each battalion out of an attack. Uh, they leave one company, uh, have three companies, usually uh, have two companies forward and one back, but uh, very often the third company would be left out of battle, LOB. And this uh, tenth of the battalion, they'd go right through uh, all ranks <coughs> and blokes that were LOB didn't go into action. Uh, they missed it and so that's why some of them were, they'd been, been around a very long while but they'd drawn I'd been with the battalion about three and a half, uh, over three years when I got LOB in Italy <coughs> and uh, the blokes went up for one night, and the next morning I got a call. Uh, they wanted a gun sergeant. Uh, one of them had come out with uh, malaria or something, and uh, so I went back up there, and I was bloody pleased to go up there, because I could say to these blokes, you bastards couldn't soon found out how he did all the work around the bloody place. <laughs> And, of course, there was a lot of hurry up and bullshit about it all, but, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know how they picked it, but, but um, the reason for it was that if the, um, the unit uh, sustained uh, very heavy casualties, they had the nucleus there to form a, a, a something fresh again. In fact, our big, I missed our big stint in uh, Pfizer. Me being that bloody young, I suppose, uh, and uh, we took to this uh, lovely drink called Purple Death. It's not about lovely, but it was, <laughs> what we used to do was empty the petrol cans out and go along to the, uh, you know, to the, sometimes just to the, the Italians. They used to brew their own wine. It was part of this was their cup of tea, was their wine, you know. And of course, they were all shifted out of the war zone. There was no one there where we, the, the uh, houses belonged to us. And, and uh, of course, whatever goes with the houses, they left their pigs and fowls. And so the, um, the army supply got a bit monotonous, so we just get the scatter gun out. <laughs> Galena or fowls, that's the Ata word for the Galena. Mayale was the old pigs and Maoris like that. Oh, and the Paga units, they, they like them too. <laughs> and, uh, 
Yeah, that's that's how things went on there. Yeah, and uh, in, we had this room partying away in this room down down below. And of course, they're all stone houses there, eh? And where we were billeted, there were stairs up to our, where we were sleeping, sleeping up the top. Uh, I thought, oh shit, I've, I've had enough, I better get out of here. And I wobbled my way out and up the stairs and I fell back down them stone steps and hit, hit my head on the blooming step and cut it open and I had to go to RAP in the morning and get the thing sewn up. And of course, I couldn't wear a blooming uh, the tin hat after that with the head bandage on. An officer took one look at me and said, uh, you're staying behind, you can't go forward. You're going to be able to wear a tin hat. Said, so we were left out of battle, L.O.B. Left out of battle. I, I think I was quite, in fact, I was quite thankful because that's where, where, the, where our heaviest casualties were there for the 12th reinforcement fellas. That was the first real action, most of them, first action where a lot of them were killed. Some of the boys were from home too, you know. That was sad for them. Yeah. So, yeah, only the ones that were acclimatised to this bloody purple death could handle it <laughs> and still stand up for her. Our general, Freiburg, boy, he was good, good to the New Zealand boys. Treated us just like ordinary, yeah. You wouldn't think he was a, a general. One time there, we know when New Zealanders go out on leave, you know, <coughs> they go on uh, drinking, <laughs> you know, and they're untidy, you know, their shirt hanging out. And when that officer comes along, you're supposed to salute And these English uh, officers, they complained to our general. And our general said, well, they're out there to have a good time. If you see them, just wave out. And they'll wave. <laughs> and they'll wave back. As I say, I was sunny ridge, that's where the Germans used the flamethrowers on us. And we jumped over a bank to get out of the way of the flames. The flames roll along the ground, 150 yards, roll along the ground, they burn you. So we jumped over a cliff. And that was the only place they used them. Yeah, or sunny ridge. Yeah, we had one man, and a very wealthy chap too, um, he could smell Germans. He, he was a beauty when he was in the line. Uh, when we got out of the line, of course, we'd walk out. Uh, when we came out for a rest, we'd walk out perhaps five miles and hopefully the trucks would be there to pick us up and take us back to a rest area. Um, and we'd get there perhaps at daylight. Uh, there'd be a feed waiting for us. Uh, so we'd have our feed, we were dirty, filthy and so on, and we were absolutely buggered. Um, and so we'd crash down. If our two eyes here, the company was any good, he'd have all our little bivvies erected. So we'd have a sleep until two or three in the afternoon. 
uh, then we'd get up and hopefully if there was a river or a stream there, we'd try and get the dags off our backside and have a wash. Um, and then there'd be another feed that night. And if the 2IC was any good again, uh, that's uh, when we'd get into the vino. He'd have a supply ready for us. And I, thinking back over the years, um, in some cases I think it saved our sanity. Uh, that would be a good excuse. <laughs> well, you can call it an excuse, but guys would get blotto. Uh, and in, if we were beside a fast-flowing stream, I can remember tying chaps to trees because uh, we thought, well, they're going to fall into the river and get washed away. So, um, you know, there's a great feeling between men and, and we would put... Uh, they'd go out the monk, you know, flat out, just leave them on the ground. Uh, and um, someone had put a rope around their leg and tied to a tree or something. Just get up, wake up in the middle of the night and, and stagger around having a leak or something and, and fall in the river. And uh, that's it. So everyone sort of looked after one another to a certain extent. Um, and this chap I was mentioning, um, he would get into the booze uh, and he'd be blotto and he stayed that way. And, and in some ways I think there was a blind eye turn quite often and I remember at one stage Claude was his Christian name, I won't mention any surnames, um, Claude arrived uh, for lunch once or might have been an evening over at the mess uh, truck a hard man, wasn't he? Um, and uh, he'd been drinking for days uh, and he'd uh, taken his boots off and he'd taken the bootlaces out of the boots and uh, joined them together and tied them to one of his boots and he was dragging, <laughs> dragging his boot and talking to his dog. <laughs> <laughs> these are stories you'd never read in a book. You'd never, re <laughs> you'd, you'd never read these in a, in a book anywhere. I mean, <laughs> You should have a tape recorder to record some of these stories you hear. <laughs> he honestly thought he had a dog on the lead, you see. And so when, when we came to, to go back into the line, uh, someone had packed Claude's gear up and we'd roll him over the tailboard of the truck. Uh, when it came time to walk, uh, Claude would be sobered enough to to sort of stagger a bit and time we got into our positions, he'd be as good as gold. <laughs> he'd walked it off. <laughs> and he was a good man to have around, I tell you. <laughs> we came out to rest from one of those shows and one the first thing you do is you wash wash you wash yourself uh, <clears throat> and uh, and your clothes and your underwear and that and you've been forward for about a fortnight and you're badly need. Well, the sergeant was busy washing his white underwear and Bill Sunderland, a hard case mate of mine, he threw a, a ripe tomato at me that was a lot of them about. And uh, 
I don't know whether I caught it or whether I acquired another, but I threw one as hard as I could at, uh, at Bill, and he ducked. And here's the side, and he's standing here watching, and wash! He'd, 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 put a he'd washed himself, and he'd had a, a clean singlet on, and he'd whack on it, and he turned around, there's only two blokes there, and both of us looking as innocent as buggery, and he... You figured it out from the angle that it was pet green. Well, honestly, some he said some blacks have no uh, pride in, in in their appearance or their personal and their personal hygiene leaves a lot to be desired. And he went on and on and some some and in other words, there was a dirty bastard and. And he went on and on and on, and when he finished, I went and washed every bloody thing I could in myself. And I felt bloody, oh, I was really squirming by the time I was at the end of it. We had Christmas in the line, we were coming out for the new year, and uh, we were in our Bren carriers, and there was snow everywhere. And the Bren carriers got no roof on it, and uh, there's a bit of a slit for the driver to look at, but uh, I was riding in the front alongside the... No, I wasn't. I was behind the bloody driver. Uh, the, the sergeant was standing up alongside the driver. Well, he was standing some of the time to make sure where he was going. And I was immediately behind the sergeant. And uh, we came to a crossroads, and there was a, a British military policeman uh, on traffic control there. We pulled up on our side and he had a bloody uh, um, balaclava on and a bloody a great coat. No, he had one of these uh, jerkins, these leather jerkin things on and <coughs> he was standing up and, 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 and we were cold and hungry and we were wanting to get out and and uh, uh, we stopped and he said, hey, uh, to this bloody provo, all provos were Lance Corporals. And uh, provo said to him, don't hey me, he said, I'm an NCO, see that? He said, you stand to attention while you talk to me. Picked on the wrong bloke. <laughs> bloody Bob picked up his bloody uh, greatcoat and he said, See that? You stand to attention. So then Bob gave him a rundown about his parents who had never got married <laughs> but had bred a useless bastard and didn't have a brain in his bloody head. And then never bloody well heard a shot fired in bloody anger, but was running the throwing his weight around behind the lines as though he was a bloody general. Oh, God. And, you know, then he said, which way do we go? And that bloody provo, he directed us the wrong way. And we did an extra 20 miles, and 20 miles when it was just about dark, <coughs> and we didn't have lights that worked on our brandy carrier. 
and we got in and uh, we were frozen stiff and ruddy sour and, <laughs> and we were telling this uh, we would have been here an hour ago if it hadn't been for a bloody a certain NCO that bloody well opened his big mouth too wide. <laughs> so uh, Bob Carlyle, that was his name. Uh, and we had Christmas dinner, at least we had Christmas in in the line at Faenza. It was our Christmas, second Christmas, and uh, we came out to Forley on New Year's Eve, and the next day we had a formal Christmas dinner in a big old factory in the town, and there was uh, there was. Uh, a liquor manufacturing factory, and they and they had a thing like an indoor swimming pool. To me, it from memory, it looked as though it was about six meters wide and about fifteen meters long. I don't know how deep it was, but it was full of some red wine. And uh, so, <coughs> the, the army, being the army, they put a bloody guard on the gate, both gates, back gate, and. Uh, then they said, right, each platoon, there's 18 platoons in the battalion, and uh, go and report with a, with a, scrounge a two gallon water can and go up and you'll get two gallons of this stuff. I think it might have been masala. And um, <coughs> anyway, we had that with our Christmas dinner, and uh, it was quite quite pleasant and a little bit of bullshit about the officers waiting on us, a tradition which I hadn't seen before. But it was my third Christmas over there at the time. And, and uh, the NZDF News, they, uh, they t told the story about the marriage of bloke that uh, uh, got drunk and fell into the uh, pool and eventually drowned. But his mate said he had a wonderful death because he got out three times to pee before he finally drowned. <laughs> so, it was an old, old chestnut, but uh, we hadn't heard it at that stage. We've been there for, say, a month, I think, a month or so, and another battalion will come and relieve us, like an English, English battalion or one part there, a Gurkha, Gurkha, but they had English officers and they came and relieved us, that, you know, and then we pulled out and had pulled out in the English boys had a place there for showering, and uh, they had the clothes there, even like uh, for change, yeah, wash and clean uh, gear, and then they send us uh, to Rome or somewhere on leave. Oh, there was a New Zealand club. Uh, well, they used to form. We, 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 they had a bit of a club at the Donnelly Hotel, Hotel or Albergo, which means Italian for 
hospital, not hospital, <laughs> hotel, Albergo Donnelly, right on the Grand Canal, and that was where we, we uh, anyone that was on leave could stay there. So uh, it was all taken over by General Freiburg. He just took the hotel over and said, this is for my boys. And they just had to move out. You don't say no. <laughs> yeah. But they had various clubs there. There was a club in Florence. Of course, there was a big one in Egypt. You what they call it, the Fernleaf Club. And uh, they had New Zealand women over there that were looking after posting letters for you, posting parcels, getting in contact with your family if you wanted to. And it was a good place to go and sit down and ha relax and have a roast meal on with New Zealand meat that had been brought over especially for the Fernleaf Club. You could have a, have a good roast meal. It was lovely. Sort of took you back to a home atmosphere for a while. And they were, they were New Zealand girls and they could speak, speak English, which was quite good. <laughs> yeah. They had, yeah, they had the Kiwi Club in, uh, in Venice. And they had a Kiwi Club in Rome. Yeah, yeah, I, I went to both of them. Yeah. Uh, the one in Rome was at the Albergo Quirinale. That's right. Um, which is one of the main hotels. And that's one thing old Tony Freiburg, uh, as soon as the place was captured, he did his best to grab the uh, best hotel. And I remember going there to Rome um, after the war had finished when I got back to Italy and um, I was dirty and filthy and so on and, and uh, took over, they take over the whole building which included uh, some shops in front and uh, there was a barber shop there and uh, the Italian barber shops were a surprise to us because they're all marble and uh, stainless steel, you see, very different from at home here. So I walked in there and I thought, well, I'm going to have the whole treatment. So, first time I'd, in my life I'd ever been shaved by someone else. And so I had a, had a, 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 a shampoo on my hair and a head massage and, and a shave and uh, a haircut, of course. And boy, I walked out of there and I was walking on air. I felt so good. <laughs> I really did. It's quite amazing uh, how good you felt after that sort of treatment. <laughs> but it was all paid for under reparations. <coughs> the whole, uh, all those clubs yeah. were part of uh, reparations because the odds were our enemies, you see. Yeah, all, all the leaf centres, like of Venice and Florence, they had, a, they had a club there, we had a club, New Zealand club, uh, Nelly in, uh, in Venice, right on the waterfront. Yeah. Yeah, Venice was uh, at the far end of St Luke's Square, wasn't it? Yeah. Was it or St Mark's Square, yeah, Saint Mark's one or the other? St Mark's Square. It did you good to be able to go to, this is when you're out on leave, not on leave, but out on a rest area. I mean, you'd been pulled out of the front line, you might have been up there for a couple of weeks, and it was great to be taken out and get into some nice clean clothing and go and have a watch the Kiwi concert party. Oh yes, 
they had an organisation that everything was under tents. They could set up a flat, they set up a big marquee or occupy a building if it was suitable for the place. And they, they were very good, the New Zealand Concert Party. Quite talented. Mm. Quite entertaining. A couple of hours entertainment and some pretty talented people amongst that group. Well, we never, um, I only ever had leave to a town after the war had finished. Um, we always just were back in a rest area. area. That's right. And never near a town. We if did. it was, it was only a little village, but we were always near water, you know, a stream or a lake or something like that. Uh, so we could clean ourselves up. The only time we went on leave when we got further north. Yeah. We went to like Venice and, and Florence. And mm. I'd leave both those places. I had, <coughs> and I went to, uh, to on leave to Lake Carmel, that's uh, by the Swiss border. Um, yeah. Been to all those places. After the war, a mate of mine said we went to, in Rome. We went to the Royal Opera House down there and saw Madame Butterfly, the opera. And that really opened our eyes because we'd heard so much about opera we didn't know much what it was. and didn't realise until we actually saw an Italian opera. It just carried you away. Marvellous. The day that Venice fell, I didn't have a job that day, God knows why. <coughs> so, uh, Snow Boyle, uh, he was a truck driver for us, he didn't have a job either, and I think there was a third bloke. We decided that we'd go to Venice, and we were on the mainland, and Venice is about four k's out on a causeway, and we didn't have transport. And we got a, a <coughs> started on it, we didn't know the causeway or anything like that, I thank God we thought we'd just you know, get down to a wharf and we were there. But we started walking and thumbing, trying to thumb a ride and was, everyone was in a bloody hurry and no one was doing much about it. And a bloke came along on a bike and we bribed him to let us ride his bike for a little while and he was dead scared we'd piss off. He knew about thieves and so on. Anyway, <coughs> We came to a bloody uh, roadblock, and there was provos on it. So we got up and walked down underneath the bridge, and it was, it was tidal, and the tide was out. We walked past these buggers and uh, and got back on it. And a staghound, uh, armoured car uh, from a British famous British regiment came along and they gave us a lip. So we rode on the outside of this bloody staghound into uh, Venice and uh, it wasn't much you could buy or drink but we got into a gond gondolier, <coughs> gond gondola and uh, the bloke was pushing us around there and uh, oh it was bloody nice. And and we'd acquired a couple of bottles of beer, bugger all, and some Yanks bloody well said, Hey, Kiwis, where'd you get that grog? We should piss off. This is uh, fire water for 
fighting troops only, not for you bludging back a back base boiling bastard. Said we took this bloody place and you take it over before we bloody well finish taking it. They were still fighting for it. There's island. It was a big island just off the coast of uh, about a bit more than a mile uh, from uh, Venice itself. Uh, Gazira, uh, no, not Gazira. It was an island anyway, and there were, it was a uh, sort of like, a bit like a. Well, there was dance halls and music halls and and drinking places and so forth. <coughs> and a bit later, when the war had finished, we were given three days' leave each in Venice, and uh, I went down there, and we. Everything shut up at ten o'clock at night, army style, and uh, so we, we were at the water, and we we got talking to a bloke who was in a yacht, and uh, he t he said well, we want to go out to the island. You know the grass is always greener over the feet, and it wasn't ten o'clock at that stage, so he he got us out, and we didn't get very far, and we got becalmed. And we got there after 10 o'clock. And uh, it had notices up, it was for American troops only. That didn't please us at all. And uh, out of bounds to uh, British troops. And uh, there was various notices. And there was American servicemen coming from drinking places and dancing halls and so So we got up and walked up the street a bit and it was all over. And, we got back to our yacht, and the yacht bloke was uh, arguing with a couple of American officers. They wanted to go to where we were heading for, and uh, <coughs> they wanted to hire him. They were all flashing uh, bigger kind of currency than we had, and uh, the, uh, the yacht bloke, no, he was pretty decent now. He said he was engaged. And, so we hopped in the bloody boat and then told his officers, piss off, this is for fighting troops only, and uh, you bludgeon so-and-sos can turn up here after all the fighting is over and done with and take out the place and put up fancy bloody notices for American troops only. You don't expect us to be very friendly or generous. And the bloody boat becalmed. We were ten feet away from the wharf and it started to drift back into the wharf. And it looked bloody difficult. It looked very serious because there was more Yanks it turned up, and the the yacht bloke put his oar out the back and he wriggled it backwards and forwards. I haven't been in a yacht since. I got to Venice twice. Yes, um, we had a great leave system in uh, in uh, Italy. Um, a group of they'd, uh, they'd check up who was them. We'd go to Florence and we'd go to Rome and we'd go to Venice and uh, I went. Uh, uh, I went to Pisa actually from uh, from uh, Trieste. That was after I become a donna. And you could uh, go anywhere on your bike and fill it up with Americans, but don't go near a pommy camp. 
Yeah. So I rode all the way from uh, Trieste to uh, Pisa. Don't drive into the you know, one of the American camps and oh, Kiwi, come in. <laughs> and they'd fill up your and tank with petrol and uh, take you down to the PBX. <laughs> Uh, take it and give you a meal and send you on your way. <laughs> well, another nice experience was in Rome. We went uh, near the dome on St. Peter's Cathedral. On the top of that dome is a big ball, big brass ball. Well, we went, the group I was with was about eight of us in, on leave. We went in there and with a bribing with a few cigarettes, uh, Italian guard took us up right up there. He wasn't supposed to and he took us right up and we got into that ball and there were 12 of us in there looking through slits in the side down at the Vatican City. <laughs> quite an experience. If you see a photo of the St Peter's that dome and then on top's a ball. We, we got 12 of us in there. We had to get through a little manhole. We were supposed to be up there. The Italian uh, guard that was showing us, but we bribed him with a lot of cigarettes because they couldn't buy cigarettes anyway. Little <laughs> oh, things you get up to. The war was over then, you see, we, we could relax a bit more. When we're out of the line, we always had a church service, so, yeah. and where possible, because every unit had its padre. Um, and I can remember on one occasion. Uh, as a platoon sergeant, um, a man in a, in a platoon, we were out for a rest. Uh, he was in his mid-thirties. He'd got a letter from his wife and he came to me and he was crying. Um, and he held this letter out to me and he, his wife was asking him for a divorce. She'd met an American. She'd, Fallen for. Well, you know, he's a 35 or 36 year old man and I was 22. And, and so uh, I said, well, there's only one man to deal with this. And I took him to the Padre um, and left him, you know. And those Padres were great, really. They were. Um, and I think they gave a lot of support Whenever we were out of the line, where possible, there was always a church service and the RCs would be drafted off and they would have their own service and everyone else was together. But I never attended any uh, civil service. In fact, you know, it's very, very evident, uh, the Catholic religion in Italy, uh, little shrines along the road and, you know, every town has got a pretty substantial church and, and a lot of them are, are amazing buildings really. So um, yes, and if you've been through the Vatican, it's, a, it's an amazing trip through there. I think as a tourist, I'm not Catholic, but um, yeah, I think Most of it, point. that's one of the sites of Rome, I think, the Vatican. And that, the Vatican makes a a colossal amount of money out of it. Colossal amount of money that's showing because, you know, you pay to go in. I would think as many go through that as, as or perhaps more, than go to the Colosseum. 
Yeah. The vast treasures there and the paintings and you know, the whole ceilings painted by Michelangelo and so on. And it's it's incredible what man can do. The Aitai villages were pretty primitive. Yeah. There was no sewage or anything you could sometimes and of course during wartime and you've got to remember that, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of men, Italian men, were prisoner of war in North Africa. Uh, and, you know, there were little kids running around hungry all over the show. And uh, uh, what war does to a country, you know, the first thing the Allies did was to cancel the currency. You know, you imagine that happening here, suddenly all your money's it's gone. Useless. Useless. They cancelled the currency and issued occupation money. And I've still got a piece of it somewhere, yeah, I, Harry. Yeah. I haven't. I gave mine away. <laughs> Anyhow. Nearer. Uh, no, we, di we didn't mix with the civilians. And we were never in the cities, unless we are on leave, and we didn't get much of that. Um, we were always out in the countryside. And I was uh, totally amazed. You know, you think you're in the cradle of civilization in the Mediterranean. Uh, and this, these are the Romans, you know. And, and when we got there, strike me pink. This is how they live, the people in the country, two-storied houses, four rooms, two bedrooms upstairs, two rooms down below, one full of hay and, and, and rabbits and, and chooks. Uh, and perhaps an a animal, if, the, if they'd managed to hide it from the Germans, um, and the other ones where they live. And the well is out the back, with a windlass and a bucket. And, and I couldn't believe it. I, you know, strike me pink, there's thousands of years of civilization here. And they're still drawing water with a bucket from, from a well in the backyard. And, and a little bit of land, an acre or two of land, they, they grow some grapes on and, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it amazed me. Uh, but all the homes were made of stone. No timber. The only timber would be uh, perhaps the doors. Even the partitions in the houses were brick. Uh, and it saved their bacon. The walls very often were that thick. And sometimes you would find the hole uh, back behind the house uh, where they dug the saw. The, I've seen them sawing the stone out in square blocks, um, you know, that long, and perhaps that big and that deep, and they could take quite a, a pounding from shell fire and so on. So they saved their bacon a few times those houses. But here, if you can imagine, here one burst of tracer and a house is gone, on fire. With all our wooden houses, there'd just be hundreds of thousands of people homeless. And it, it affected the Italians, you know. It must have decimated them. Absolutely. Because tens of, hundreds of thousands of their men folk were prisoners of war over in North Africa. In fact, on the way after we got over there, I had one of them as a batman for quite a while, and, and I loved to have brought him home. <laughs> he was so good. <laughs> um, and, you know, they, they were destitute. 
I, I saw them eating rats. Yeah, you know, that you don't realise just what it can do. And, and of course, everything was destroyed. You know, the railways, the bridges, uh, a lot of the roads, the homes were, were wrecked. People were very friendly. Getting to know the lingo was a bit difficult, but it's amazing how you can pick it up when you, if you try. And uh, the, the, the people were pleased to see us, because by then the Germans had pulled out of, not out of the bottom part of Italy. And uh, they were very friendly. Very pretty country, beautiful country. I have to confess that I didn't fraternise as much I fraternised less than average, because uh, I felt it, it was risky not to, and we had we we're taking enough of risks without taking any more. Uh, and when all said and done, in the south of Italy, where we started off from, the fascist movement was fairly strong. It, it, and it almost dissipated uh, as we got up into the north. Uh, the Italian women are fantastic. The country women, we didn't see it much in the towns, but you know, it just didn't go down with us. You'd see the refugees and the old man would be riding a donkey and the women folk uh, trailing behind with a with child the or two. And, and a great big swag of stuff on her head and, um, and he's sitting in luxury on a donkey um, and that was totally strange to us. Um, no, we didn't enjoy that at all but, but anyhow that's the custom I guess so. The, 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 we found the Italians were very, very um, hospitable people. Um, they weren't war, war like at all, they'd never be good soldiers. But uh, they worked for them to send to their homes and, uh, well possibly because we, they couldn't buy soap. We always had soap and flour and um, tinderbully beef and stuff like that. So um, it was all, but um, uh, they were very, very generous with, their, with their, what food they had available and things like that. And uh, the fact that we sort of learnt to speak Italian and could sing, and sing all the Italian songs, um, uh, we were very, very popular actually. The fact you could talk their language and things like that, that thought was absolutely marvellous. And uh, um, possibly uh, we might have expected a, a bit of a colour bar, but there, there was no such thing. The Maoris were just as welcome as anybody else, more so possibly the, the fact that we spoke um, Italian, sang and musical and things like that. We were very much uh, like the Italians, our culture and everything else. So that possibly made a, a big difference to our reception wherever we went. The only thing I remember about the reinforcements were they were very, very poorly trained. Yeah, but there were some good ones. Oh, yeah, yeah, good jokers there, but they were... And, and we made no comparison. You know, they just fitted into the platoon. Yeah, that's right. Just the same. Yeah, yeah. But they'd had very little training, had they? Yeah. Really. I don't think they had. And, and well, several times... We had one who joined us and he was a, a, a man who'd spent all his life in town, not a terribly robust man from a very prominent Auckland family. Um, 
and uh, he was about uh, 36 or something. And he just physically wasn't capable of doing what we were doing. You know, uh, time and again, someone else would have to carry his rifle for him. Because, you know, he'd spend his life probably sitting in an office and um, he just physically wasn't capable. Pleasant enough sort of guy, but uh, just how much, I don't think he lasted long at all. Um, yeah, generally speaking, um, oh, they fitted in all right. Much like anyone else, I suppose, good in the bad. A, a, a notorious killer that we had amongst us there in the person of Freddie Ha. He was a half-caste uh, and he loved it. I think he got, he derived quite a lot of enjoyment uh, from uh, warfare. But he was an outstanding soldier, but a terribly difficult man to handle. Bloody dangerous. Freddie was from Ongarui, and uh, one day he came home to tea and he said, uh, I've got news for you people. He said, uh, I've joined the army. They said, you're too young. You're 18. The father said, well, I've got some news for you too. He said, I've joined the army. And they said, but you're too old. So these two blokes said, well, if you don't say anything about it, we won't say anything about it. So they went together and they joined the D Company, which was mostly King Country boys. And they went into action in the same platoon twice, I believe. Anyway, they, they'd been, been in action twice and the authorities said, this is stupid, we'll break these two blokes up, split them up. So they did that. And on three occasions, um, Freddie, Le uh, the uh, officers and all of the NCOs were casualties and Freddie led the, the platoon out on three occasions. He took charge of the group and he blotted his copybook. He, he should have been decorated over and over because when he got drunk he would abuse the bloody officers and he'd tell them it was useless dopey bastards they were and had <laughs> a lot more. And well, when he was half fong, he was, I took a grenade off him one day. He was stalking around. He was going to drop it at the feet of the platoon sergeant. Uh, and I said, don't be a bloody fool. And uh, eventually he gave it to me and it had the damn pin out of it. Uh, we, we changed its hands, all right, with no pin in it. Uh, but the main thing I wanted was to get it off him. Because when he was pale with rage, he, he'd do anything. And uh, his brother turned up over there too. So there were three of them in D Company. The, by that time, the father was given a job um, in stores. He didn't have to go into battle. Oh, very unusual. Father and two sons in the unit. Who was that? Freddie Ha. Oh, Ha, yeah. yeah. I a photo of those here somewhere. He was a wild man, Fred, um, and in lots of trouble with, uh, you know, 
authorities with, he was in the Waikatas. I, I think I could handle Fred uh, probably better than most people, uh, although I say it myself, but uh, his big problem was booze. Of course, when he got boozed up, uh, he was uncontrollable. Well, his father was uh, worked in the stores on the stores truck. Um, he never was. He was too old in any case. He'd probably put his age down, and some of the boys would put their age up. So uh, Fred would have been uh, the right age, but his younger brothers. They all worked in mills down there. And in, in the King Country, a lot of blokes went overseas that were young. <coughs> when they got a job in the mill, they put their age up to 17 so they could get an adult wage. There was a, a, a wage for blokes that joined the mill at 15. They didn't want to be 15-year-olds, so they were 17-year-olds. So uh, they would have probably been doing a man's job for a while, from 15 to 17 or 18, and then they went away. And, there was a lot of them like that, but Freddie, uh, he, he, he was great, and uh, he was a brilliant soldier. Well, we had Traco Jones in the mortar platoon, and he was a Maori in Napui, and uh, uh, he, in striving to be as good as us, he left us for dead. He was brilliant in action, and he was bloody terrible when he got drunk when we got out. He belted me twice one night in Forley. We'd come out and we'd had a pretty trying time, and he didn't get much sleep while you were in those forward areas, and uh, I was in my bed. There was a door with an ammunition box under and two of them under it and I was up off the floor and I was wanting to go to sleep and Tracker came in and he was full. He wanted me to go to a party with him somewhere. And I said, no, I can't be, I'm not going to any bloody party, I'm bloody well out on my feet. And I was in bed with arms around the blankets. Uh, and out of nowhere, he hauled up and belted me. And he had a bloody ring that had been made out of a uh, an American silver coin, a dollar, and it was a, it was a knuckle duster. And he hit me with that. And uh, I climbed out of the bloody bed in a bloody hurry, and I, I was going to murder him. And he could scrap, and I didn't know anything about fighting at all. But uh, the blokes grabbed his arms and, uh, and grabbed mine, and uh, so it was all over. And oh, my best mate, my best mate, the tracker says, and he would make no hell of a fuss of me. And I got back into bed, and you know it bloody would have happened again. And I picked up a lump of wood, and I was going to murder him with it. <laughs> So they took Tracker away and said, we'll shoot you if you come back in this room again tonight. But uh, he, he was an excellent soldier. He, Tracker was a very respected soldier in our outfit. And he'd been with him, he was a banana bowler. He'd, so he'd, he'd been in Rosag and, and through, through the Alamein to Tunisia and 
got, got back to Cairo from Tunisia and went to the Peter for, for 90 days. He and a mate decided when, uh, uh, when the war finished in North Africa uh, that we'd be getting leave and they were broke. So they, uh, they picked up a German uh, uh, Tommy gun, the Smizer. They picked one of these up and they flogged them off. And the uh, British SIB blokes picked, picked these blokes up and they got 90 days. And uh, when, when the division came back from um, Tunisia to Mardi and everyone was going on leave, Tracker was chasing the bloody... He came back and I just joined the mortar platoon then and, and he, he came in from the, the Rock College as they called it and uh, and he was telling us and it was all a bloody joke, the whole bloody thing. He said oh, we treated everything we could as a joke. He said you had to run everywhere. He said you had to read routine orders so you had to match time at the double while you read it. He said in your cell, before you came out for uh, ablutions, they came along and they threw you a razor blade. This is through at the bars, and you had to pick it up, and, and they were collected it in three minutes. And he said it was a bloody rough blade that it bloody well uh, blokes had used, and he said it was bloody blunt as hell, and uh, he said you had to do what you could. He said I was a bit lucky, Mary, he didn't have many whiskers. But he said... Uh, he got outside and he said, uh, we had to fill a bucket with sand and then put it up on our shoulder and jog about a hundred metres and then throw it down, upside down, and turn it up and pull it up with sand and jog back again. And he said, you're doing that for about a three-hour stint or something. And he said, during the morning, we got onto it. He said, we'd be filling it up and we'd be putting the sand behind the bucket, away from the, uh, the drill officer. And he said, you throw up there. He said, you jog up there and you throw it down and make a big cloud of dust. And he said, we got away with it all for the rest of the morning. And he said, the first time after lunch, they caught us. Mm. What do you got to say for yourselves? Nothing. Mm. What are you having for tea tonight? Mm. Uh, he said, the bastards, they could give you a, a punishment like that. Easy. And he said, but me mate and I, we'd made a, a promise that we'd, we'd try and laugh and, and smile, keep a smile on our faces all the time. And he said, that irritated these bastards. No end. And he said, uh, we let them hear us talking one day about what we were going to do to these bloody screws. They go on leave to Cairo and we go on leave to Cairo. We won't be here for the rest of our lives. And when you go on there one night when we meet up with these blokes, well, before we put them into the bloody uh, Nile with their throats cut, we're going to do a lot of various things. Like we said we went into detail, and he said uh, they uh, 
They treated us a bit better than that. He said, we hadn't really got onto that until just about the end of our stay there. And he said, we had to jog to the gates when we were being discharged and we got through the gates and made sure that the gates were shut again when we turned on them and told them what a pack of useless bombards they were. Uh. Uh, we sang a lot. Yeah, sang um, a lot. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we did sing a lot. Only when we got the veto in us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that helped a lot too, <laughs> of course. But um, no, in uh, Amphit, uh, well, on the boat over, I was part of a, uh, three of us, sort of made a little trio, and uh, uh, one of them played the ukulele. Um, and then later on, in 17 platoon, we had a chap who was uh, had a piano accordion with him. And uh, he was a real expert. He'd won a lot of competitions back here. Um, and that piano accordion now is now in the museum at uh, Wairu. Um, What's his name? Uh, his, his daughter. His daughter married uh, married uh, Norm Harris's eldest boy, oh. uh, Beth. I'll think of it before long. The old mind takes a while yeah, to, to right. click into gear yeah. these days. Um, Oh, he could play that mission. That boy, he was good. But we did. We sang a awful lot um, when we were marching and everything, you know. But of course, when you got close, you were quiet. Yeah, yeah, right. The less noise you made, the better. Did, did you sing bawdy songs, or, or was it? Oh, a bit of all sorts. All yes. sorts. Yeah, yeah, all sorts. But you know, there were some wonderful popular tunes then. Old Vera Lynn and so on, um, they were always, uh, always easy to sing. And, um, uh, you know, Silent Night and that sort of thing, guys would break into it in the evening and that sort of thing. Um, and bring tears to some guy's eyes and so on. Yeah, um, oh, a lot of sentiment, I tell you. Uh, what we're saying, when we came out from breaks, there was usually a bit of alcohol provided, or at our expense, and uh, we drank this and we usually sang. And as, as the padre went very crook one day, he said, <coughs> I had a visiting padre from the such and such a unit the other night, and he said, it was pay night, and he said, there were you blokes out in the desert, he said, you were singing, and my guest said, "Isn't it wonderful to hear those boys singing those, singing those hymns like that?" And he said, "I was agreeing with them, and I was just going to tell them, though they do that pretty often." When he said, "They next switched into their next number, and it was Ephemol." <laughs> And you, you become so uh, bonded yeah, that's right. uh, to your fellow men. It's perhaps difficult for the ordinary people to understand, but uh, you do become extremely bonded. And uh, if someone gets, gets killed, um, 
at the time, you probably haven't got time to to think too much about it, but uh, by the you don't forget it. And they come, the, some of these memories, as you get older, um, I have found that they come back to you fairly vividly. Um, come back to haunt you. You would think, you know, the ites might hate us because uh, some of the chaps, I tell you what, did a lot of looting. Shagged their daughters too, didn't they? Uh, some, some, battalion, some battalions, far more than others. Yeah, because we, we saw sunbucks doing pretty despicable things. Oh, didn't we? well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. oh, some guys, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you get that in every society, don't you? Some guys uh, make you disgusted. Yeah, that's right. All right, Tiny Fryby and these 40,000 thieves. <laughs> the Maoris had a good racket. They'd go and commandeer a horse of somebody and take it down the road and sell it to somebody else. Because <laughs> being in the unit, the Italians would think, <clears throat> well, they've got to give the horse up, they want to use their horse. <laughs> All sorts of little rackets yeah. that acquire certain things and go and sell them. <laughs> I put the word acquire in, in inverted commas. <laughs> yeah, they used to... Uh, issue us with BA things like that, so much a person, like for each platoon, and uh, they used to bring us beer, cigarettes. But, uh, well, I didn't smoke then. Uh, all that stuff, eh? chocolates, and uh, well, they're still in the box, and. Uh, Italians used to, we used to tell them, hey, we got some for sale, and they used to come and buy the lot. Oh, cash, you know. And then I used to go out on the road out from our camp, and I put an armband, you know, uh, military police. <laughs> Anyway, I'll wait and they'll come out with their box, boxes, saying, you know, we're happy, you see. And then I'll come out and just stand and show my, you know, I didn't have to do anything and they would drop everything. <laughs> drop it, take off, because they'll be arrested if they caught. With our stuff, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, that was the happy times. When we, uh, as I say, we had all these ones that come across from Yugoslavia. Well, they had a lot of cars on these boats, and we floated uh, a uh, quite a lot of petrol and all. We actually got a uh, little jeep and a 44 gallon drum of petrol we put into one of the trucks and took up to three years. But they had uh, 129 uh, cars that they took down to uh, Bologna and sold them, the silly bugger, the, um, uh, 
that sold them put his name and every and everything down on the sale was known anyway. Uh, they were going to be prosecuted because Freiburg wiped it. They couldn't do. They, they weren't. They were legal tender. <laughs> But we sold ours for a hundred and uh, hundred and thirty-nine lira, and uh, to a doctor, because we had the pet as well as the uh, yeah. So we got out. We got something out of it. But well, um, we didn't do any of it. But there was a lot done. There was a lot done. Um, uh, some of the uh, some of the units were probably uh, uh, better or worse at it than than others. Uh, but uh, yeah, there was a lot of, yeah, and I guess all armies, if you go back in history, um, have done that sort of thing. The only thing that that I ever did that I can remember was when we were delivering trucks from from uh, Italy to, uh, to um, up into uh, Yugoslavia. Uh, this was after the war. And so we used to, we were at Trasimeno, that was Lake Trasimeno, and mm. we used to take the trucks there and we'd go up through Udini and, and up to, up into uh, Yugoslavia. Okay, when we got to Yugoslavia, boy, we'd hand the trucks over to the drivers with them. We weren't allowed in Yugoslavia. But before that, we used to have, this, have them serviced. And so they'd be all, trucks would be serviced and be filled with petrol. So we'd stop before we got to the border and we'd drain the petrol out <laughs> into jerry cans and put it in the truck that we had to go back on. So while we were coming back, we'd sell that petrol to the high ties because petrol's very, very short. Uh, that's one thing we used to do. Uh, so when the trucks got across the border, they'd run out of petrol, naturally. <laughs> there was uh, there was lots of opportunities to uh, you know for looting and so on, and and the black market was was uh, going flat out like uh, you know. Uh, if we, if possible, we always brought a Luger pistol out of the line, and the Yanks would be around like bees around a honeypot, uh, wanting to buy a Luger, a Luger office, um, and uh, we used to sell them to the Yanks for cigarettes. <laughs> so many cartons they used to get them in big long cartons like this, whereas we got fifty a week free issue, but. Um, the old capstan cigarette. <laughs> um, yeah, there was lots of opportunity when I was in charge of that transit unit. Uh, of course, we could uh, go to the NAFI, which is a, a British outfit that sold all sorts of um, the better things, uh, comforts and so on for, for troops. Um, and it wasn't far down the road. Uh, you had to buy the stuff, um, but there's always a ready market for it. <laughs> but there's really money to be made there. Oh. We, we did a stint in Milan, 
after the war we did a stint on the on the what's the name factory, what's the name of the motor car? Um, Fiat. Fiat. On the yeah. Fiat factory there. We, we did a stint there. And of course there's all sorts of stuff in there, as you can imagine. So there was petrol, petrol there and uh, 40 gallon drums. So I was, I was on Pickett and had these other three or four jokers there and they oh, we'll get rid of one of those drums, you see. So middle of the night we rolled one of these drums out and, and uh, they had a truck there and they rolled on the truck and that, of course, they hopped it off. I wasn't in there, but I was there on the picket at the time. <laughs> so all those sort of things happened. Uh, yeah. They built a whole, um, uh, a whole factory in one of those tunnels that goes through the Alps up in northern Italy. Um, so the whole one side of the tunnel from one end to the other was just one machine after another. Uh, and there was only a one-way road here. Um, so I don't know what they produced there, but it might have been tanks or firearms of some sort, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I saw that. Um, yeah, the whole thing. You'd never know there was, there was a factory there of any sort, right inside the mount. But the Italians yeah. were very, very short of clothes and that sort of thing. In the back of my truck, I had uh, aeroplane uh, uh, cloths that we used to put out, you know, recognition, recognition uh, flags. And of course they were made of silk, weren't they? <coughs> Lovely things they were. I told you ladies, they loved it. Just about give me anything for them. Eventually, mm -hmm. eventually I got rid of them. Did you? Yeah, but I won't tell you what I got. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you won't. <laughs> <laughs> the worst, worst thing that I had happen to me was uh, <laughs> we used to, on the truck, we used to have ration. I had a ration. I used to keep rations there for, for special occasions. There would be tins of stuff and like that. There was a box about this big. That had a lock on it. No, he had one little bugger. He only just joined us, hadn't joined us very long, and evidently he got into it and he sold all the food out. Gee, I was wild. I could have done that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we would get letters. <laughs> I remember uh, just before we left. Uh, um, Marabella to advance up to San Macali. We got a mile. Sometimes we right. go three months or so before we got mile, and then we perhaps get six letters all at once. And we would we got a mail delivery just as we were due to, yeah, right. to start off. And I stuck. I had about four letters. I stuck them down the front inside my battle dress tunic, and I thought so more about it until after we'd captured that place at San Michele, at, uh, at Mar uh, Castle Fontana. Um, and when all everything had settled down, um, I wanted to drop my strides. And, and so I looked for a spot and there was a place, a room in that place where the, all the Germans had been having a crack, you see. So I went in there 
and forgot all about the letters in my battle dress. And of course, undid my battle dress and squatted down and did my business. Uh, and uh, you never get issued with toilet paper or whatever. So um, anyhow, I did myself up again. And uh, oh, about an hour later, I thought, all oh, those damn letters. God. So I went back and there they all were, still lying there on top of the crap and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I opened them up there and then and took the innards out and left the rest where it was. I took the letters out. <laughs> it's funny how those things come back <laughs> into your mind. <laughs> In the last few days of the war we were rushing up from village to village. We held up a little while while I rounded up a few Tedeschi's here and there, and uh, we were, our convoy was held up briefly uh, somewhere alongside a bit of a marsh, and Reed's part and a German soldier was yelling out to us. He wanted, wanted to attract our attention, and he said, I've got some mates down the road. He said, they want us to surrender to British troops, not to partisans. He said, could you oblige me? And uh, we had a, a second lieutenant with us, Sammy Reedpath from Tiamudu. And uh, he reluctantly, <laughs> I think, <laughs> uh, he agreed and, and it was 1,500 rates and then he took two or three blokes with him and they went with this German. He hopped on the running board and they, were, they went up side road and they came came to a clearing and there was a not a few of German mates there. He said there was a whole uh, regiment or whatever they were of engineers fully armed and there was 700 of them and they were drawn up on parade and the jury that, that contacted us he said uh, the general, the, the, the colonel wanted to speak to them and he spoke to them for a few minutes and we think that he was saying, well, you fought an honourable war and you're surrendering to an honourable enemy. I've been assured that you'd be uh, given good treatment, but you've got wonderful memories of our unit and what they achieved and the comradeship that has been that we've had in this outfit. And he then asked the men to lay down their arms. And uh, the blokes that went up there filled seven sandbags with revolvers. See, most engineers carry revolvers because they've got tools in that. And uh, <coughs> Uh, so the, the, these blokes had these things to sell to the Americans and probably did reasonably well. <laughs> we got to Rimini and then uh, the, the road from there went to Bologna or somewhere and that was Forley and Faenza were on that route. Uh, just out of uh, Rimini uh, we started going northeasterly and there was another road from Ravenna we never actually got into Ravenna, which was sizable, sort of a uh, probably a lot bigger than Forley and Faenza.
And so I don't remember much about what was happening before that. I know we were in better and better there. We were on, on the receiving end of a lot of shelling and bombing. Not much bombing. Over. And uh, we had Greeks. They'd been trained up uh, by British and uh, they weren't going too well, so they borrowed uh, an old soldier from our outfit, uh, Major Ted Akard from Tauranga, and he went over as an advisor to them and they went into action there. And of course they were patted on the back and told how bloody wonderful they were and uh, so forth. And uh, uh, it made a, they, their performance was improved very considerably. Thanks, Ted was a, a baker by trade. And he was a major at that stage and uh, became a colonel later. And uh, he was a down-to-earth bloke. And uh, so they did all right at that. And, uh, uh, yes, I don't remember much about the things there at all until we got to. Uh, on the outskirts of Forley, we, we eventually managed to persuade the enemy to evacuate it. And uh, we occupied it, and there was buildings there, and, and it was quite a village. There was a big hall there that had been a training ground for Air Force. And the ceiling was like the ceiling of the uh, that big theatre in Auckland that had stars and the uh, um, ceiling. But th these ones in, in Forley were there for the uh, part of the pilot training. The knowledge of the stars was one of those things that the, for uh, their um, navigators, I suppose. But uh, we, we, uh, we were moving forward from there to uh, take up positions outside uh, Faenza, uh, and uh, on the road there was a two-story house there standing all by itself and there was a, a bomb hole in the roof of it and a bomb doesn't come down vertically it comes it came down and it hit the roof and it came out the side and it landed out in the paddock and it didn't go off and they told us that it was Freiburg's headquarters. Hmm. Yes. Anyway, we we got into this uh, Faenza. Uh, well, we were outside Faenza, <coughs> and we had to. Uh, there was uh, we had to support an attack on Faenza itself, and. The area that was facing us was a, a high cemetery wall. Their walls were about 10 feet high, and they buried people in the walls of it, and uh, th three high at least, maybe four. And uh, so the, th the wall was at least 10 feet high and 10 feet thick, and uh, <laughs> hollow in the middle, of course. And uh, w the enemy had burrowed underneath it, and they had machine gun nests. Uh, that they could fire on us, and then when the shelling started, they could crawl back under and be out of sight and out of mind. So we we were asked to drop bombs down into the cemetery itself. So we did that, and uh, it was the biggest fire order that I, I, I was ever mixed up with.
Each gun had to fire 150 rounds, and uh, we had six guns, so there's 900 rounds, and uh, the barrels got red hot. And it got to such a stage, we put a bomb down the bloody barrel, and uh, around the tail fins we had uh, these charges for extra range, and they were in celluloid sort of stuff, and they were about as thick as your finger, about as big as a shotgun cartridge. There were six, six of them, or, you'd, or less, depending on the range. These bloody things were catching fire as the bomb was going down the sparrow. And so it meant that the, the bomb hadn't got its full impact. Uh, uh, so uh, so it uh, it was falling short, and we had troops for between us and the enemy. Now we were a bit concerned about that, so we said, "Oh well, we'll have to bloody well uh, cool the bloody barrels down." And of course, we had a Maori bloke which was pretty vocal and pretty active. He said, "Oh well, I'll do my share." So he pissed on the barrel, and it made such a horrible stink. We asked him, "Don't do any more of that." <laughs> so we filled tin, tin hats with water and cooled them down. And uh, <coughs> the next day, the enemy had withdrawn. <coughs> They'd evacuated for the fire engine. And we went over. We had a look at uh, wh what we'd done. And of course, there was a hell of a lot of marble and solid stone stuff in the cemetery. It was hardly marked from all our bloody bombs. And they'd. they'd Arrived on target, all right, I think. But among the, the graves was the graves of two New Zealanders from the First World War. And we found out afterwards that uh, the blacks that were fighting in Palestine, I had two uncles in mountains there, and uh, when they got seriously wounded, they used to bring them across Italy to, to France and uh, take them back to England and uh, be nursed there <coughs> and uh, in, all, in most dressing stations they did receive some very uh, severely wounded people and, and uh, blokes died there and uh, so two of the blokes en route from uh, Palestine to England had died there and, and uh, all these years later we've been bombing their bloody uh, graves. We didn't feel too good about it. When I went back to Italy, uh, 50 years later, we uh, we were in a bus and we stopped from somewhere for a, a coffee or something and uh, I noticed a, a cemetery across the road. So we went into it and had a look at it and it was an Italian serviceman's one and each grave, there wasn't a bloke lengthwise buried in it, there were three three occupants of each grave. Each grave would have had to be dug with a compressor because uh, it was rock. And uh, they had a headstone there, and on every headstone, almost every headstone, there was a, a pair of rosary beads. And I looked at them, and a lot of them were a lot better than any that I had in my pocket. <laughs> and uh, we found out that they were uh, Italian uh, Alpini troops, 
they're uh, elite troops. You've got to be pretty good to get in them, and they're like guards, our guards. Uh, they're just the best. And uh, when Italy capitulated, and eventually some Italian outfits came and helped us, these blokes, being uh, Alpine troops, they fought at Casino. And uh, they, I'd, it was only really by asking questions that we found out that these blokes had done some of the rough bloody work around uh, Torelli and the very steep mountains. God, the mountains are steep there. But um, when we got to uh, somewhere around Florence area, I'm wandering around and I saw, I saw a bloody grave there and I was with a bloke from Christchurch he was a headmaster of some kind of a school a private school or something down there he was quite a quite a bloke and I'm saying and, I, and more or less to myself I say oh there's major so-and-so's bloody uh, grave and he said where I said there Oh, God, he said, I knew him well. I said, he's a very dark bloke, a regular soldier. That's right, he said. I said, how the hell did you know him? Well, he said, we went through some course together someplace, and uh, we became friends over a long period. And it was too, just out of the blue. And it was in that cemetery that we saw this Gurkha grave of a boy that was 15. But uh, in the uh, casino cemetery, a couple of Maori blokes came along and they looked at a Maori's grave and they said, you know, the people back home think that Sammy here died fighting for his country. He was a real hero. He said, they regard him as a hero back there. They said, actually, Sammy had been across the bloody... Um, rapido and a bloody uh, rather unstable bloody boat uh, to get some grog and on the way back he was that pissed he fell into the bloody river and drowned and he said there's people back home they still think he's a bloody hero <laughs> well it's the way it goes you know we we get all the we say get the shit because we used to get all the all the jobs to do hey you know, and all that. Yeah. They want a job to do, get the infantry, hey. Yeah, we used to be proud of it, you know. In this episode, in order of appearance, you have heard Pat Green, Bluey Homewood, Don Adams, Colin Murray, Norm Harris, Charlie Honeycomb, Tipuhi Patara, Bob O'Brien, Harry Hopping, Nolan Rehania, Aubrey Bowser, and Ted Waters. My thanks to the Tiawamutu RSA, Richard Carstens, and Harima Fraser of 28 Murray Battalion Association. This episode is dedicated to the memory of those no longer with us. Bob O'Brien, Norm Harris, Aubrey Bowser, Harry Hopping, and my great-uncle, Ted Bluey Homewood, and all those who served in the New Zealand infantry on the front line.